How can the crucifixion possibly be called good? How is it good that an innocent man dies for the guilty? How is it good that one of the most brutal murders in all of human history can possibly be good? In today's episode, we take a look at the crucifixion and how Good Friday truly is good. You're listening to the Girlfriends in the Word podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Drum. This podcast is designed to dive into scripture through systematic study in books of the Bible, through cultural conversations with women today, or on specific topical studies so that we can learn what God has to say for our lives. My goal is to equip you to study God's word well and to encourage you in your faith journey as we walk together and become girlfriends in the word. Happy Wednesday, friends. We are in the Garden to Grave to Glory series and Easter is around the corner. As we approach this holiday, it can be so easy for us to focus on the beauty and power and majesty and the miracle of the resurrection that we can often skim past the pain of the cross and the crucifixion. So this week, we are going to dive into what happened on that Friday from the arrest of Jesus Thursday night all the way into the crucifixion. And we're going to look at why we call this day Good Friday, especially in light of what the crucifixion consisted of. And I'm not going to lie, it's a heavy topic, and it's one that I personally don't necessarily enjoy spending time on. I admit freely that I would rather not do this episode, because the topic matter is heavy and it hurts. Quite honestly, it steps on my toes because the crux of the crucifixion is really my sin. The reason for the cross is my sin, your sin, our sin in general, The death of the innocent for the guilty feels too much to bear. And yet it's the story of our Savior, and all these details matter. So today, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to walk us through chapters 14 and 15. I'm going to kind of summarize the events and the order of events that happen, but I want us to dive into the particular text of the actual crucifixion. In our last episode, if you've been coming along the series with me, we studied the time that Jesus spent in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wrestled out his will for survival and avoiding the pain that would ensue. We watched the humanity of Jesus fight for self-preservation as the deity of Jesus found his joy in doing the will of the Father. We watched Jesus pray and petition his friends for support, and we learned of angels ministering to the Messiah as Jesus conquered in that garden what Adam failed to do in the first garden. After this time of prayer and wrestling in the garden, we learned that Jesus walked from his place of prayer, and in Mark 14, 43 through 52, we see that the next event is the arrest of Jesus, as one of his own disciples, Judas, betrays Jesus with a kiss. The religious leaders have come to arrest Jesus in the dark of night so that they can avoid a mob of dissidents opposing them. And following his arrest, Jesus then stands trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, a religious court system that the Jewish people had created. We see false testimonies are given against Jesus and that the leaders grilled Jesus with questions when he only responds as the high priest asks him if he is in fact the Messiah. And we see Jesus respond with, I am. The name of Yahweh, he gives to declare that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He has declared his lordship. And rather than worship and surrender to Jesus, the high priest declares Jesus as blasphemous. 
And it's during this time of night that Jesus is disowned by Peter as Peter stands outside the courts of the temple system by the fires with other people. And because the Jewish leaders were unable to sentence anyone to death and all justice matters had to be dealt with through the Roman government system because they occupied the Jewish land, the following morning we see that as the Passover meal had ended and the religious leaders are in the temple, they make plans and send Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman official in charge of that territory. And Pilate spends the morning hours questioning Jesus. But this time, Jesus makes no reply. It is at this point that Pilate faces a decision. For the custom of the day was for the Roman leaders to release a prisoner at the Passover holiday. And the evening would bring Sabbath and close out the holiday week so Pilate could choose between releasing Jesus or releasing Barabbas. And he brings the decision to the crowd of people outside of his palace and gives them the option, the innocent Jesus or the criminal and murderer Barabbas. And here we see the crowds chant and scream to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. They got what they wanted. The murderer is set free and the innocent goes to the cross. And Pilate, wanting to avoid a riot of angry Jews and any kind of upsetting information getting back to Caesar in Rome, he desires to please the crowds, for he fears man, and he sentences Jesus to crucifixion. Pilate then turns Jesus over to the Roman soldiers who flog him, make a crown of thorns upon him, mock him, and put a purple robe on him. We haven't even gotten to the execution part of the crucifixion, but if you study the Roman process of crucifixion, you'll learn that what happened to Jesus wasn't a normal process. Pilate ordered the flogging of Jesus, which alone was enough to kill a man. As the process of being flogged involved having a leather whip with many strips of leather, and inside the leather was woven broken glass, shards of bones, and rocks. Jesus was beaten with this, and it would have resulted in the shedding of his skin likely down to the muscle and sinew on his spine. The crown of thorns wasn't something lightly placed on his forehead. Rather, in order for it to stay, it was likely that it was pressed into his head till it struck his skull, and the thorns were so embedded into him that it held still. His back would have been raw to the bone when the soldiers placed a robe on him in mockery. And consider, what does fabric do when it touches blood? If you've ever had a gash and you cover it up, you quickly learn that fabric and blood stick. As the blood dries, the garment would have soaked up all the blood that was there and dried up against his skin or whatever was left of it. So when the soldiers rip it off of him, it would have again ripped open all of those wounds. The pain that Jesus has already endured up to this point in the morning is excruciating. And many scholars are amazed that he even survived this long, for many would have died at this point. And yet here Jesus is still alive, still breathing, enduring the pain. The process wasn't finished on his part, and he couldn't yet give up his spirit. And the Romans then intend to have Jesus carry his cross to the place of Golgotha, called the Skull, where they actually carried out the crucifixion. It's a location outside of the city of Jerusalem, which is incredibly important, which is a detail we'll deal with with another time. 
But what we learned from Mark chapter 15, verse 21, was that Jesus wasn't actually able to carry his cross. At this point, he's so weak and so much in pain that it makes sense. How could he possibly carry half of the cross all the way up a hill? But it's also a super interesting and incredibly important detail because the Romans' purpose in having the criminal carry their cross was so that it would allow the crowds watching to know that this man was indeed guilty. It was the criminal's way of an acceptance of guilt and an admission of their own crime. But this tiny detail that Mark records about the Romans having a man called Simon of Cyrene, a passerby, carry the cross of Jesus, that matters. Because you see, Jesus was never guilty. He was totally innocent, and he died an innocent man in the place of all of us who are guilty. And the picture that is painted of a guilty man, a sinner, Simon, who carried the cross of Jesus up to Golgotha. Yet it was Jesus who died in the place of Simon in the place of all of us, in fact. But it wasn't Jesus who deserved the death. And it's here that we're going to pick up in the text of Mark 15, verses 33 through 41, as it reads, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Did you get chills as I read that account and you pictured Jesus up on that cross? I know I did. And while today we're only looking at one of the gospel accounts for the sake of time, I encourage you this week sometime to go back through each gospel and read the story of the crucifixion and piece together the details. Because when you get every vantage point of the gospel writers, you can see the seven things that Jesus says throughout the process. You learn the people who were there at the cross and what happens to the creation as the creator dies. It's a beautiful and horrendous picture. And I want to stop here for a moment because I want to fill something in for us. Historians tell us that crucifixion is one of the most horrible death penalties in human history. This Roman process was humiliating, excruciating, and torturously slow. Some criminals who were crucified spent days in agonizing pain as they literally drowned in their own body fluids. The breaking of the prisoner's legs, as we learn in other accounts, that are on the cross was common so that the soldiers could speed up the death process, especially when it would happen on the Jewish Sabbath. And it was an act of mercy for many so that the men wouldn't be on the cross for days, picked up by the birds, and people wouldn't be walking by, mocking them and throwing things at them. For Jesus to have died in only three hours was amazing, and at the same time it was awful. 
because he was already so close to the physical process of death before he even got to the actual cross. And there's so many points of study in the crucifixion that we can hammer out. We can pick everything apart. And truly, I encourage you to go back and study it from every aspect and every angle in the four gospel accounts. But where I want to land today is on our term Good Friday and how we can say that the death of Jesus that Friday, that Friday afternoon was good. You see in verse 34 of the passage, Jesus cries out a verse from Psalm 22 one. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't know about you, but I have grown up hearing different statements about this phrase, and the statement has made all manner of theological debates. And perhaps you've heard people say that the Father turned away from Jesus in this moment, and that Jesus couldn't bear it. And I know that's something I have grown up hearing and have investigated, and I've wrestled with that as I've studied this, because as somebody who believes in the Trinity, you can't separate the Father from the Son from the Spirit. How can God be against God? So it, it's a really difficult issue of contention that the father would abandon the son. And what I believe is happening here and what I want to make an argument for, something that I've heard explained in very different, brilliant circles of biblical text and, and critical studies is that Jesus in his pain and in the process of death, as he prepares to release his spirit back to the father, he goes back to what he knows, and what he knows is the word. He is the word. He goes back to the words of David, as David has said this once before. Because in everything that Jesus is enduring, the Father is not acting on his behalf. The Father is not intervening in this moment of extreme crisis and pain. The Son is enduring the crucifixion, while the Father is in heaven not doing anything to stop it. And let me put it this way. God the Father could have at any moment in this process stopped everything. The Father could have sent a host of heavenly armies to annihilate the Roman centurion and his troops or to decimate the temple leaders. And instead of intervention, the Father did nothing. And in the doing of nothing, the not acting on behalf of the Son to stop the process it is seen as forsaking him, which if you study Psalm 22, this makes a lot of sense because Jesus quotes the first line of Psalm 22 as David's cry. But when you read the next line that David wrote, David's cry was to God because he felt as if God was forsaking him because God was not acting on his behalf in that moment. You see, verse two of Psalm 22 reads, oh my God. I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. See, David's psalm is one of crying out to the Father, asking for the Father to intervene, and yet the Father has not, which is exactly what Jesus is doing. He cries out in his pain and in his agony, and the Father has not stopped the process. God the Father was silent and still in this moment waiting for the work of earth to play out so that it could accomplish the will and the work of heaven in the spiritual realm. There was something greater at stake and in play in the heavenlies that we are not privy to know or to have seen. And so from our perspective of the earth, it looks like the father was forsaking the son, when in reality, 
The father simply did not intervene because what needed to happen was more essential than what we saw. So back to our theme, how is the crucifixion good? How can we call Good Friday good when the most brutal and awful of murders happens to a man who was innocent? Well, let's look at the text. In Mark 15 verses 37 through 39, we see three things we need to take note of. First of all, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus is the subject of that sentence and Jesus was in control of the actions. It was Jesus who was in charge of his spirit in all of the events, not the Romans. Jesus allowed every action to be done to him because there was something greater at play. Jesus breathed his last breath in his last moment and released his spirit. And at the moment of his physical death, something else happens. The temple curtain is torn. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to tear fabric, you often do it from the bottom of the seam to the top. The temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Because this temple curtain signified the separation between God and humanity. This curtain in the temple separated the glory of God and his manifest presence when he would enter into the temple as the sinful presence of mankind through the holy priest or the high priest came into that space. It was in this moment of the death of Jesus that the sacrificial system in the heavens was satisfied. Atonement was made, as we learn from the book of Hebrews, and there would now be no longer a division or a separation between God and mankind. Jesus changed the system, and Jesus made a way where mankind would never have had a way otherwise. And finally, the third point, verse 39, we see after Jesus has been in control of all things and he surrenders his last breath, the division is made from heaven to earth, and there is now a new system at play. Verse 39 tells us the centurion who was involved in the process of killing Jesus, who was there from start to finish of this death, He comes to faith in Jesus as the Christ. He declares himself a Gentile who has no concept of Jewish theology. This Roman stands at the foot of the cross and he himself declares that Jesus was the son of God. The death of Jesus changed everything for everyone. What was bad for him in those moments was good for all of mankind for eternity. We call this day Good Friday, not because the crucifixion was good, not because what happened was good in a physical, earthly sense, not even because it was that God stepped in and saved Jesus from the pain. We call it good because Jesus was able to endure the cross for us. He endured the pain of the process of death and the humiliation and the excruciating pain of the cross. Because there was a joy ahead of him that was far greater than his moments of suffering. And that moment of joy was making a way of salvation for his creation. And that's for you and I. Good Friday is good because it was the crucifixion that led to the death of Jesus, which led to the relationship we can have with the Father now that our sin has been atoned for. Because it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross that Friday afternoon. But it was the Father's love that kept him there. It was the perfect obedience of Jesus as the Son of God to the perfect plan and will of the Father that the cross made a way for us to live eternally in a right relationship with God. You see, the cross was horrific. The result was good. 
It was good for us that he would suffer. And it was good for God because in it, it brings glory and honor to him as humanity turns from sin and Satan toward relationship with him. Friends, as we prepare for Easter and as we come to Good Friday, let us remember what it cost him and let's sit in the beauty of his love for us. Until next week, friends.